0: Hello and welcome everyone to The Good Lawyers Show. I am your host, Matt Scrivens, and as always, alongside me is Good Lawyer's CEO and co-founder, Brett Colvin. Our guest this week is JP Couture. JP is a lawyer, a former partner at two major firms, founder of the legal startup Ingenio, and member of the Legal Futures Initiative. A little background on this episode. Our original topic of conversation was supposed to focus on how JP has built his new startup Ingenio. However, he's not quite ready to pull down the curtains and all the details of what he's been up to. So, this week's episode focuses on how JP went from having an extraordinarily successful career in law, having clerked at the federal tax court, and becoming a partner at not one, but two major firms before deciding to embark on an entrepreneurial path. Now, it's important to understand becoming a partner at a major firm is considered the gold standard in the legal industry, and not many who attain that degree of success put that aside to risk building their own tech startup. So much of this episode is focused on how JP was able to attain that level of success at a young age, and his mindset around making the major switch to becoming an entrepreneur. Once Ingenio launches, we will be getting JP back on the show to give us all the details on how he built his startup. This is like a cliffhanger episode. You're gonna want more, but you're not gonna get it. Not yet anyways. We must all learn the art of patience and we will get you that episode in good time. During the conversation today, we also discussed the massive human element embedded in our laws, practical alternatives to dispute resolution, JP's experience building a law firm, essentially from scratch within the accounting firm PwC, and the importance of having focus, being efficient, and developing your skills as a lawyer. And, on a very quick final note, we at Good Lawyer are still offering free 15-minute legal advice sessions to you or your business if you are facing any COVID-19 related issues. Simply visit our website at goodlawyer.ca, click on our COVID-19 resource page, and book your free legal advice session with one of our fantastic lawyers by entering the promo code hashtag washyourhands. All right. With all of that concluded, let's jump right into the conversation. JP, thank you for being on the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Yourself? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule to come on our our show. We we greatly appreciate it. We are itching to get you on. We have been. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah. So you're based out of Calgary at the moment, correct?
1: Yeah, I am. I've always been, uh, I've always practiced out of Calgary. I went to law school in Ontario and and immediately after I moved to Calgary and started my practice uh, with a large national law firm here in calgary
0: oh okay, right on yeah, so maybe just give us a bit of uh, an introduction on exactly that like what what drew you into law in the first place and then I believe you clerked as well is that correct
1: yes that's uh, that 's correct so um I went into law i don 't know it was more of a curiosity or anything i 've always I uh, liked it, and, but I went into law really w- wanting to do tax in the first place. I had an undergrad in, in commerce and, and accounting and I had seen tax and I wanted to do it, but I wanted to do it from um, a legal standpoint. So that's a little bit how I ended up in law, um, went through law school and, and then I did a master after law school in tax, specialized in tax and then work for the first few years in tax. Um, tax is a really hard area to market on its own. Like when you start practicing, um, so, you know, slowly deviated towards corporate law and, and up until recently I was, uh, practicing almost full time, uh, corporate law and tax like, a, kind of a mix of both. So,
0: right. No, that's really cool. So, why is it that it seems like the one area of law where people come in that actually know what they want to do is tax? Well, why, like, what is it? What's different about tax? It's like people when they come in, they're like, no, I want to be a tax lawyer, and they end up doing that. Everyone else has no clue, and you kind of wind up through, you know, whatever way the wind takes you. What, like, is there a reason for that that you came in knowing what you wanted to do?
1: That's a really good question, actually. I, I think it might have to do with the numbers. I think it's probably one of the area where you deal m- the most with numbers and and, um, and it's a very different area. Like, a, you know, if you ask around in most law firms, the, the tax lawyers are not generally the popular pe- people to invite to a social event or a Christmas party or anything <laughs> like that. You were an other. exception to that, yes, you, if absolutely. I do recall
2: myself yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you but um yeah so so i think it, it might have to do a little bit more, more with the number uh right. it's a it's a bit more technical as well so
2: well, well i just you, i just gotta jump on that go, note for one that, second here because um i remember when i i believe it was when i was summering you're gonna steal my
0: story you're gonna steal my story at <laughs> the firm we we, we
2: work together at and uh do you remember a textbook that you gave me that was on I want to call it, I want to say it was section 142 of the tax act or something. The the entire book was on one section of the tax act. (laughs) And you asked me this thing that you made sound so simple. And I must've spent three days like pulling my hair out. And then I came back to you and I was like, JP, I found this French document that I think references it, but I can't read it. So (laughs) this is the best I could do. Yeah. I probably
1: slip and was a typical tax lawyer by giving you a book and say, Hey, please oh my God. look I, at
2: this one section. I have no yeah. idea what that said.
0: Actually, yeah. mine was kind of similar. I was a, a first year summer student at BLG and you sent out an email to, um, uh, ask for for a few people to review a paper you were submitting and I remember taking it and I read it and I know it was in English but beyond that I can't tell you too much what it was about so I think uh touching on that being a tax lawyer is a calling I think that confirmed it right there for me and I knew that I, that wasn't where I was headed so I know and
2: I wanted to be I kind of wanted to be a tax lawyer but no, because probably. of JP because JP Agreed. was this like swanky smart tax lawyer guy and i was like oh yeah let me try this and then i was like oh my god i just disappointed jp so badly <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that's actually really good because we we kind of use it to test people and see oh okay are they gonna yeah. go into this uh in this this practice area or are they gonna go somewhere else it uh, <laughs> was I, a good yeah, test that, that i definitely for me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: So, um, and then you did, you did clerk at the tax court as well? Is that yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So after, um, uh, after, uh, university, I, um, I was, um, I wrote the, the Ontario bar and, um, I got a clerkship at the tax court. So I worked for a full year with the judges of the tax court and it was a really interesting experience, even though I, I never really practiced in, in tax litigation. I did, did a little bit of tax litigation early on, but, Quickly move it away from from that, um, but it, it was just it, it was good to uh, be able to work with a judge to see the their normal you know practitioners, uh, you know they struggle with the same um, the same things that we do as in, in private practice in, in, in some other areas, it, it um, yeah so it, it does creates mm-hmm. a very good experience and and I think I, I went to court it a few times after that but it it did always. Um, you know, give me a view that the judge is just like a, a normal, mm-hmm. uh, um, practitioner in law. Um, kind so of demystifies it. it, it, it. Absolutely. Uh, it just, it's put everybody on a, on the same footing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not as much intimidated as, as you were before. It was funny, but I, I went a few times to QB, uh, here in Alberta and, and I was always more intimidated there. I don't know whether it was because I, I didn't know all the, you know, the, the the rules and, and everything as much as in the federal system. But uh,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I, well, I can attest that standing up in QB is always a little nerve wracking, even though I've only done it a few times, but yeah, that's, uh, that's something I never quite got comfortable with myself, but was it, it was it um, helpful to you to see how these litigation matters got brought? Like, did that help you be a better corporate lawyer? Do you think having, having got that perspective?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because in litigation, I mean, you, you sort of react to something that happened in the past and you're kind of, you, you're you trying to not fix, but mitigate the risk. of right. uh, Something that happened in the past, where uh, as a solicitor, a little bit more prospectively and, and just trying to make sure that these risks uh, are mitigated right from the start. So.
0: Right.
2: No, but, you know, uh, seeing how the judges operate, you know, Internally and getting a, a feel for what the tax court is really all about, um, I feel like it allows you, in particular with that experience, to play on the lines a bit more because mm-hmm. you can see, you know, the thought process behind the decisions that are, you know, on sort of the the line.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's it's a really good point. I think because sometimes, you know, in, in quite a few cases, I had a chance to be in the room while the you know the lawyers were arguing their cases and and once everything was done then you 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 know go behind the scene and you have a chat with the judge and you can see already where his mind is leaning towards and you you start doing research in that area Um, you start working with them on pieces of the judgment or um, things like that so it it gives you a very different perspective because you first see it as almost as a counsel because you're sitting in a room and then behind the scene you see it as um, you know, as a Claude, uh, um, collaborator of the judge. So. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. I know. You know, when you, when you think of it, it seems like, you know, you, you submit your, your case and then, you know, it spits out a decision, but really, you know, like you said, there's a human behind the scenes struggling to make a decision and then, you know, that's their job is to make decisions.
1: And, and it's really interesting, the, the human component of the judicial oh, yeah. system is often overlooked at. Sure. Um, because, I mean, uh, the, the the nice setup at the tax court at the time was that we were working out of a pool of clerks. So it was um, 10 or 12 of us for, you know, 20 some judges. So, um, you know, you, you you know there would be judges where you would work constantly with there are judges you'd work less with and some that you would never work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but they you know by working with many judges you're not you know um y- you can see how they react differently to different things. So for example there are judges that I remember had um you know you know for them it was a very personal thing to be overturned in appeal. Um, and and things like that. And others where it was the opposite is they were a bit scared of being overturned in appeal and were a bit more careful. And others would be, I remember one of the judges I used to work with would say, you know, if I've done my research, I've come to, you know, a good conclusion taking the, you know, the right path. Um, And then, you know, the court of appeal uh, decided otherwise, so be it. But Mm -hmm. it's not all the judges that think like that. So he had a whole range of, of thought there. Um, that I thought was quite interesting that you don't necessarily see in practice. Well, yeah, you
2: have like a, someone, you know, much like yourself, you know, pushing yeah. boundaries intentionally, yeah. recognizing that he might get shut down. But if you don't push the boundary, it's never going to change.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still- I've always wondered that actually how judges feel about being overturned and having their decisions challenged at a higher level of court, whether, whether they're putting through something that they feel should be challenged and are happy that that happens. Or if they, like you kind of mentioned, some seem to take it personally and say like, you know, no, my decision's right. And that's a bit of an insult that it might be overturned. That's super interesting just to see how the legal process works.
1: The, the whole human factor is very interesting. I remember also working with uh, a judge um, on several files, and I remember she told me a bit of her story how she got appointed to the, the bench, and she was fairly young. She had young kids and everything, uh, was an experienced litigator. But, um, you know, the first time you show up in court as a judge and you have two senior counsel in front of you, and I think there's also a little bit this this test a little bit if you allow me to characterize it this way but where you know they're just trying to see how solid as a judge you are on your your feet and and you know um you know they they notice that i think the judges and and so so there's a whole progression and it's also interesting to see some judges um, from the moment they got appointed to five years later how much they they've matured in the role uh, or also when they just got a like i had to couple occasion I work with judges for, you know, two months after they had just been appointed. So transitioning from private practice or in house right. to being a judge, uh it's a it's a very different mindset as well. So um all of these things are are really interesting. Like the, the whole human side of, of the the, the courts is really interesting, I find
2: well and yeah. I don't think Matt had planned to go down this path, but I have have to take it down this no, path this a little good. bit. Yeah, I like it. Um Do you think because, you know, obviously, I think what we're talking about is there being, you know, the human variance, if you want to call it that. Um, Do you see technology minimizing that or diminishing it going forward? You know, if judges have easier access to, you know, the entirety of cases on similar, you know what I mean? Like as the power of technology enhances their visibility on past cases, do you think that discretion is going to decline?
1: Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you look at like, in particular, like the one that comes to mind is Blue Jay. That's what I was their, thinking you of. You yeah, know, right. they, they take like highly factual questions. It built like a, a decision matrix where, you know, they pull out all the maybe the 20 very relevant questions or factor that decisions were based on. Um, I think the technology will somewhat play a role, maybe more on the research side, but on the ultimate response, I, I still think that there is, there's the human component, the, Mm-hmm. Um, you know that needs to be part of it, uh, and you know, like for example, the credibility of a witness. So that can't, you know, you can't um, invent like uh, an artificial intelligence tool um, to um, assess the credibility of a witness. Like, Still, so, mean, you
2: probably can. You probably can. <laughs> yeah, we're not there but, yet. And, and, but, yeah. and
1: it's it's really interesting too. Like in the time of COVID, when you talk about. Um, Uh, like Richard Suskin talks about like virtual courts, how do you maintain the public characters of courts and also that ability of judges to assess the credibility of a witness. Um, All of these factors, I mean, you know, there's lots of things that are are easy to fix with the technology in the middle of a COVID crisis, but there are lots of things that, you know, we probably won't get right from the start. It will require, you know, a bit of trial and error, um you know um one thing that i learned when i went to to work in a, a big international professional firm um where the, you know they 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 work a little bit more they take a little bit more risk is you know the, the expression internally was always try it if you fail fail fast something that lawyers were not very good with
2: mm-hmm. um, for that sounds reasons. like a startup and i know you're not talking about a startup <laughs>
1: yeah no it, but it was like in, in practice i think i think accountants and other professional um are a little bit better at taking some level of risk um, mm-hmm. yeah. in their the day-to-day practices in lawyers. Well, are. and
2: they amalgamated a lot earlier than the, the lawyers did and the jurisdictional issues are significantly diminished. So, you know, I think that that scale has really facilitated a lot of that innovation because, you know, they just have the resources where they could take gambles on things and, you know, not mm-hmm. be con- too concerned about the outcome. Um, the one thing I just want to touch on quickly though, was the piece, you know, can, software or or whatever determine credibility like that's you know i think that that's something that it could maybe end up doing but fundamentally what it can never do i don't think and this is where i think judges will always remain super important is deciding what is right and what is wrong and that changes as society evolves and so you know for me i don't think you can ever replace the final judge with a computer because a computer doesn't have morality. A computer doesn't like understand how a society's you know adjusting over time in that human way that you know a judge would. So,
1: and, and it's interesting because, um, you, you know, it's a jury of your peers or a judge of your you know right. you know essentially that makes a decision. So it has to be representative of of uh, judiciable. And also um, just, just like people that are intervening in court have their own bias and, and judges have their own bias as well. They, they're mm-hmm. trying to put them aside as much as possible, but they, you know, um, if, if you have a judge that um, practice, you know, for the crown for a large portion of their career, you know, they, you know, it, it does affect their judgment or their way of thinking. They, they look at it from a different way, not that they're biased by it, but it, it does affect their, uh they're thinking I, I remember judges who who had been appointed from the crown that they were so um uh concerned about that bias that they were very very careful in making their decisions just to make sure that they don't look like they're always deciding in favor of the crown or they have a bias in favor of the crown and, and sometimes would hear on the side of cautions almost on the other side because mm-hmm. of it so
0: which is a bias totally. in and of itself, which is kind of yeah. a bias on a bias. Yeah, you yeah. can't really avoid it. And I think that's some of the hope of the more optimistic people around AI and these types of things that hopefully that can somehow bring the bias back. But as you both know, and it's something that is, I, I find is somewhat misunderstood uh, in law is that it's such a human enterprise. And I think a lot of people outside of law maybe miss how much it is because you'll hear, Oh, it's, it's the law. But when you, peel back the curtains and you see exactly kind of what we've been talking about the how how many fingerprints humans have on not only what the laws are but how they're interpreted who's interpreting them and when and the studies on this i'm sure you guys are both very familiar like the 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 amount of people granted parole is somewhat way less near right before lunch than it is first thing in the morning, you know, so all these human factors that are built into decisions, it's, it's a little bit uh, crazy when you actually think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing too, is the whole accessibility to justice. I think the technology can play a, a very big role into that. Um, There's so much more that we can do in terms of volume and even small claims. Um, There's the actual decision, but there's also the confidence in the process leading to the actual decision. So if it takes too long, like Mm -hmm. we saw with the Jordan uh, decision of the Supreme Court, um, it has consequences. If the process can't deliver, um, you know, an earring or a decision within the right time, um, yeah. Well, this yeah, was it, no- it, oh, go it ahead, really, sorry,
2: it. It, it really is like, and you know, maybe you'll have to edit this one out, Matt, but like, if you don't get fucked bad enough, <laughs> it's not worth suing over. And you just, you're just right. hooped. Yeah. And you know, if the other side has some understanding of how the legal systems operate, they it, it can really put them at an advantage because it's just not worth it. Yeah. yeah. But it's
1: it's, it's, it's almost the wrong way to fix the problem. It, you know a couple of things about that like if you if you look i was reading recently that ebay has over sixty thousand um litigation a year uh on transactions that happen on our platform that are resolved just through electronic right. way of solving things so why can't we be able to do totally. this with you know um rent control board or small claims and things like that we should mm-hmm. be able to um, give that justice to people and in many cases to um uh, I think it would give confidence uh, in the justice system to people because their case would be handled faster um, within, means, within their means because justice is, is expensive as well. So you want to make sure that um, people can have access to it and they're not limited by the fact that they don't necessarily
0: have the money to afford
2: counsel. Right. Well, and so maybe Matt will take us.
0: (laughs) So that was a a tangent. This is turning into the Joe Rogan show here. I was not expecting to go down that, but that was fascinating actually. I'm I'm glad we did. Uh, But, but yeah, just turning back because you actually have a pretty fascinating career yourself. And the first half of it is uh, obviously you got, you're very well educated for those who don't know the tax lawyers are oftentimes considered some of the smartest lawyers, even in the firm. Um, But then you're the first part of your career was becoming a partner at a major uh, firm in Canada, and then shifting gears and becoming a partner at a major accounting firm also, in, in, and I believe international uh, accounting firm, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe do you want to just take us through the the first half of your career before uh, before your shift?
1: Yeah, so, so I started practicing at BLG Calgary uh, in a tax group, slowly I would say deviated uh into doing more corporate law um a little bit every year but still like a core big core tax practice um and then i had a colleague at the time uh a young partner as well we got along really good and he got an offer to go do tax litigation with um pricewood house cooper the law firm of pricewood house cooper um, and then within a few months, he sort of approached me and he said, well, there could be an interest to start um, a corporate law practice to support their tax practice. So we started looking into this and at the time there was no other accounting firm venturing into this area. Most of the accounting firms in Canada had sort of venture into tax litigation. Um, they were starting to do a little bit of immigration law, mm-hmm. uh, but that was it. So. Um, so then I, I spoke with them and I really like their attitude towards innovation, uh, really like what I was doing in a law firm, but I, I think I needed a bit this, you know, control or being able to build something from scratch. So, so, leash. Um, um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I left and and I went to um, the law firms affiliated with PwC, um, the Canadian law firm. And um, quickly, it's interesting, when I went there, one of the first mandate they gave me was innovation to have more technology in in how we were rendering services. And also it was it wasn't like an easy, a difficult choice to make because the way we were organized, we really needed technology. Um, we were organized by cities. Uh, we were building offices in other cities, so um, very small team um, covering a large territory. So technology became like quite central in our in in our offering. Um, and also the practice really changed. Um, you know, you get to a firm uh, of that size, and you quickly you want to be able to generate revenues and, and prove that their bet on Growing a new practice area or a new professional practice area um, uh, would pay off. So you're you're kind of chasing a little bit everything internally, but I I really um, got involved into the international network of law firms that PwC has. So um, a firm like PwC, it's not one firm. It's it's a series of firm in every countries, but also. Um, because of legal regulations, each law firm is separate. So, mm. PwC, when I joined, I think we had some somewhere over ninety countries where we had law firms. Um, well, and-, and JP, you
2: know, I just want to you know highlight how big of a move it was for you to open up a law yeah. firm within an accounting firm in Calgary at that time. You know, I just don't want to like blow past that because that was like you know sort of monumental in terms of. Um, It was a really interesting
1: experience, actually, because you get there and you're starting something new, but, um, you know, most of the people you work with on the accounting side don't really know how a law firm works.
2: And lawyers think you're crazy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And also, um, not only this, but you, you forget that law firms, most law firms have been around for, you know, in the big ones, like BLG, where I was at, had been around, like, the before BLG had been around probably for close to 100 years, some of the firm yep. were the holders in Canada. So they, you, you forget all the process that were put in place over 100, 150 years that got tweaked every year and improved. And now you'll send in, you end up, you and your party go, uh into an accounting firm that has 225,000 employees and 40 billion dollars of revenue uh and, and you're just like okay now i need to build a law firm and a corporate yeah. practice so it's yeah. it's it's a bit daunting at first um you um you know when you don't want to learn just by mistake you want to clearly just put in place the right uh, mechanic and you know the right um processes in place so that uh you know, you delivering good services. And, and then you also end up with, you know, other challenges like the interaction between a law firm because you're a separate legal entity affiliated with another legal entity that is the accounting firm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there's a lot of shared resources, but there are rules in terms of control, in terms of what law society wants. So that um, there are things that you have to put in place, um, you know, just to protect that for confidentiality. So, so it's it's a it's a huge challenge at first, and their conflicts are completely different. So, you know, they have Sovereign going back to you know right. two thousand and one and the the failure of Enron. so at first you know business conflicts yeah you're just and and you got to first learn about how their conflicts work Mm -hmm. because it's kind of the starting point then the second level of conflicts is your conflicts because you're a small firm you're just starting usually it's it's not like a huge issue to start with but they're really interesting and then you have also modern problems like um you know two months after uh, i i joined pwc pwc he made a, a big transition and went all to the Google platform and the way Google um, um, saved their data at the time, oh, you God. had, um, you know, the data residency issue. So then you're just like, okay, we're everybody's transitioning you're trying to get the law society on board you know they don't even know why they
2: have the rule yeah and the law
1: society have a tendency (laughs) sometimes of of giving you an answer saying oh do what you think is right this is the rule but do what you think is right and you're trying to get sort of a more definitive answer they're just doing doing this they're just struggling they're They're just like like, 142 is either yeah (laughs) and and to you know had to the matter we were we were building sort of nationally. So then we had more than one province to care for. I mean, looking back
0: at the challenges, uh, yeah. it's almost scary. Um, you know, to think about that. So, so GP, I have to ask, you know, and, and for those who don't, don't know that are listening to us, becoming a partner at a major law firm is the gold standard. Like that's the big prize at the end of the yellow brick road. And obviously you got that at a, at a fairly young age, if I remember correctly, and you decided to walk away. So what, what possessed you to do that? Like, obviously you talked about your desire to build something. Was that always something innate in you that you just need, that was an itch you needed to scratch or was there more, uh, more around that decision?
1: Yeah, I think there was a series of events. And I think, um, you know, uh, As my role is sort of evolved into the affiliated law firm, I took care more of the technology side of things, and I saw certain opportunities there. Um, Also, I think I've always been sort of characterized as a lawyer, quite an entrepreneur as a lawyer. So I always had, um, you you know, um, business interests, and I was always involved in businesses to try to be, you know, on boards and things like that. so so all of this together, I think at one point, I think I got to the age, uh, you know, uh, getting close to my 40s, I thought, okay, maybe I, that's not exactly what I want to do because I, you know, there's lots of things that I, I really like with a, a big national accounting firm, international accounting firm, but, uh, you know, after three or four years, four years, I, I thought the bureaucracy was, it, it was like, it's a big organization when you think about it, like, a you know, 235,000 employees by the time I left and almost forty billion dollars in annual revenue um, it, it is massive. like in Canada we were 600 partners um, so it's it's a very different um, structure so uh, I to a point where I was wondering if and or whether I should go back to a traditional law firm and you know a, a friend of mine a good friend of mine told me he's like well you know why don't you do it take a couple of years and and uh, do your business venture and then if you crash and burn and you can always go back to the legal totally.
0: practice
2: yeah roll the dice yeah.
0: so so is that what did it then it was it you were you were running into a bit of bureaucracy you didn't like and uh you had this idea for a a business that you potentially wanted to start and you just decided this was a good time in your life to to take that jump
1: yeah, absolutely. I had this idea and I just couldn't see, you know, I'd work with other people to try to develop it. I just couldn't see anybody going the direction or or actually addressing the problem that we, you know, it's interesting when, when we go down that we went down that route of um, of acquiring some technology, we would always make a list of our pain points. And, uh, and, you know, when we decided on our solutions, we essentially look at it and say, okay, you know, is there anything on the market that sort of address, let's say 50% of our pain point? And we're just like, no, 40%, not really. Wow. And we were down. So we were thought, okay, well, uh, maybe either we're wrong in assessing what the pain points are, or people are just not going in, in the same direction that we're going. So, um, you know, funny enough, that's the same paralegal that had followed me from BLG to, um, to PwC, we had this discussion, we both, you know, um, felt pretty good about it. So, um, then made the plunge and, uh, started the, the tech venture. Um,
2: and what's it called JP in
1: late, Ingenio. Ingenio. So, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, you know, um, I think it, it has the Latin roots of law and also the concept of being ingenious and have a little bit of ingenuity in whatever we're doing. So that's, nice. that's where we, uh, we came up with the name. So. so
0: so I want to get in, and obviously we discussed before we recorded that you don't want to get into too many of the salient details, even though I don't think anybody's going to have a chance of copying you from the sounds of it. But uh, but like, I, I want to just get a bit more of your mindset uh, when you made that decision. Was it hard? Were you to say, hey, I'm I am leaving a life that I know and I'm very good at and also makes me a lot of money. Not that I'm sure that's not important to you, but like, you know, you're you were very successful at a young age. You were at the top of your game, looked like you were probably on a, on a path to wherever you wanted to go. And yet you decided to jump off that merry-go-round and go do something completely different. Was that was that that sounds gut wrenching to me. Tell me if I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you, you know, you're sitting at your office in the law firm and you're thinking like, oh, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Let's jump. And then, you know, you jump and then two or three weeks later, you're just like, oh, (laughs) I did actually jump. Um, So uh, a little bit, but I think, you know, um, I look at my days today and I still practice law, like I still, uh, especially during COVID, I think I've, I've kept a core group of clients that have followed me over the years um and and you know i'm thankful for their support as well because i think a lot of them were encouraging um some of them even said hey this is a great idea right. can i invest well, um, amazing uh, but i mean you don't want to get into like stuff like that too much not either but um you know, I, I think you know I was lucky, and I always wanted to keep these guys because I thought, okay, well, if I do crash and burn, I would like to have a practice to go back um, and have something to to go back to a law firm.
0: So, so you didn't um, tell and, the managing partner to f off or anything on your way out? No,
2: no, no, I didn't
0: do like a, no. um But JP, good. I
2: think that speaks to you know, and this is a little plug for Good Lawyer. JP is one of the tax lawyers on the Good Lawyer platform, and <laughs> seriously, JP, like I think that's a, a testament to you with these clients that, you know, have moved with you wherever you've gone. Agreed, because yeah. they have so much faith and you add such a unique value as a tax lawyer that, you know, goes way beyond this is what the act says. This is, you know, what your options are. Like you, I, I know from personal experience that you go so much deeper than that. And so, I, you know, again, I think that's a testament to you. And right now it's definitely got to be nice to have a steady book of business to help sort of fuel this this dream yeah. that you, you're pursuing.
1: And, and the other thing too, I mean, it works both ways, because if you want to start a business, if you, you know, I wanted to be able to run clients through my own product, to be able to say, here are the bugs and here, why it doesn't work. Um, sometimes I find with technology is, you, you know, there is a few different things that until you've sort of experienced files through it, it's really hard to say whether it's going to work really well or not, or, you know, sometimes it's just that it takes a humongous amount of hours in order to um, um, customize the technology so it work. Um, I, I had a product market fit is so hard. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is very hard, and you don't want to be able to, in a position where every time somebody makes a comment, you accept it, and you're constantly building and building and building. Right. Either, um, but and also think a little bit, not not just have a cloud version of what already exists on premise, but have you know, just go to the next level, bring more collaboration, bring more intelligence, bring more like, um, you you know, the bottom line of what a lawyer does and, and, uh, you know, I've always said that is we manage risk. So Mm -hmm. if you do litigation, what do you do? You manage risk. Um, If you are a solicitor, what do you do? You draft documents, what are those documents for managing risk? So for me, it was really important to build uh, a product that would improve the overall outcome for the lawyers down the road not just make it more effective but also manage risk better right Mm. Um, and this was really you know that's why i was looking at it from bringing more intelligence and and you know um, you know there's a great book out there where if you look at other professions for example the surgeons use this checklist it's not because they're not smart they're uber smart you know, but they use checklists so they don't forget things. They they don't right. um, you know they don't um, miss a step, miss a beat. Um, you know, lawyers it, it's part of this, and this is not technology. It's it's um, uh, it's just that. So there's a great book called um, a Checklist Manifesto that looks at studies that they've done with surgeons um in developed and undeveloped world where they they came up and over 4,000 surgery they reduced the errors by 34 percent by just oh, wow. using a checklist this is mm-hmm. not like this is not two percent or three percent this is like 34 percent a third is
2: is that arrogance or complete like what what characteristic of the lawyer do you think leads them to not use you know the metaphorical checklist like we're talking about
1: I, th- I don't think it's arrogance. I think there's a couple of things. I think first, I think this is the training. I think as lawyers, we should be more, better trained to other things than substantive law in law school. Mm-hmm. So we should learn about project management, you Agreed. know, uh, design, design thinking and things like that. Uh, all these things can improve really the ultimate um, product, work product, but also uh, the the client experience with service customer success is another great one that lawyers, um, you know, you look at the great lawyers in law firms. Very often, have a big book of business. Very often, will have these skills, but it's it's not really um, thought in, in law schools um, or you know to young lawyers. And I think I think they're very important. Um, the second one, I think it's time you sell your time. So you're trying to and you already work yeah. crazy hours. Um, you know, um, beside um, doing a little bit of teaching, maybe internally or mentoring and doing business development you don't have a whole lot of time to put into technology or learning other skills totally. so 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 i think that that is as an impact mm-hmm. um you know i often say to the young lawyers that i work with like you need to invest in your practice you need to like uh, you know it's, it's a capital asset like your skills you need to invest in your skills but you also need to invest in developing tools that makes you better makes you um more, um, more efficient when you do your work, but also not just more efficient, just better overall product at the end of the day.
2: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more, but I, and I've had this conversation before um, I left the firm and, you know, I I gotta say that I I think it largely fell on, fell on deaf ears, but I think the firms and especially the big ones with more resources need to do a way better job at incentivizing some of these other things. Because you know, as an associate coming through the firm, there was virtually like there was very little regard given for bringing in work. There was even less given for mentoring others, and that's the biggest one from my perspective. Like I, you had to almost get lucky or try really hard to build you know more or less a friendship within yeah. the firm to get that mentorship that everybody needs. So I I do think the firms could do a lot in terms of preparing their people better just by using the tool that they have being the bill blower
1: It's really interesting. So the accounting firms, um, by the time I left PwC, they had like this massive project of um, they were calling it value billing. So you bill in accordance more of the value of the service you're giving instead of an hourly rate, you still have an hourly rate. But the reason why they came up with this is because they were investing all kinds of capital in technology, but in trainings and, 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 you know, you can't recuperate that investment just on the hourly rate. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, digitalizing, um, digitalization tools you you can recuperate your time because you you no, just it, take you less time
2: to to make it get so you yeah exactly so it's naturally a, a disincentive to invest in these tools yeah. um but at but the same not time not a disincentive to recharacterize how you bill totally
1: yeah yeah but it, at the end in the end of the day do you bill less or more for the same scale probably around the same uh, the same I mean, but you you bill for a better quality product right. i think
2: um, totally, right. totally. You're striving for something totally different and yeah. adding more value. And, you know, I think is the big, four, that's what's accounting missing for the hour. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: that's good. So we do want to be respectful of your time and I'm looking now we're already over the hour, but I do have one final question for you. Uh, you're, you're part of the legal futures initiative. Can you just give us a, a quick overview of what that is? Oh, you got one too, Brett or?
2: no, that was it. Oh, that was, oh, that was it. Was it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, there you job. go.
0: So you're, you're part of the legal futures initiative. <laughs> uh, just give us a quick overview of what that is and what your role is in that. So the legal future is and why certain, it's important um, and why it's, yeah, important. Yes.
1: it is very important because it's, it's kind of the, so you have the King and Bar Association, uh, um, at, at a national level that is an association of lawyers. And, and back in 2014, they commissioned a report to study the, you know, the future of the profession, you know, where is law going and, and what should we do to improve, um, not just on the tech side, but also on practices and, and, and a whole series of Covid initiatives. So they created a committee. They did a report, and um, there was like broad objectives and everything. And the committee continued after that. So we still today uh, meeting meeting on a regular basis. Like Covid, for example, we we played a role. So our our chairman is on the. Uh, on one of the committee that look at how we can digitalize all the federal court system. So with the chief justice mm. of all the federally appointed justices uh, of the different courts, superior courts in every province and federal court, federal court of appeal, they're looking at, okay, how can we improve the the overall court system? But we're also looking right now, we're doing digital digital literacy program where we're trying to um, put emphasis on learn to learn to be a little bit more digital, whether it's security, how do they assess technology and things like that? So we run a series of initiatives uh, that we see key for the
2: future of the profession, essentially. There's all kinds of issues um, with yeah. the professions. I got to jump on one more quick one before we hang up. Supreme Court of Canada, going back to paper, as I understand it. Yeah, but
1: I mean, the Supreme Court is an interesting model because if you look at um, under Justice uh, Wagner, uh, what they've done in recent years is that for, for the first time they held uh, they, they held they had court uh, audience outside of Ottawa. Um, you know they, they're opening up the court. They're more transparency. Uh, it, it is very interesting what they're doing. So yeah, I think they will be. You know, when COVID is done, there's probably going to be a bit of a scale back on all this innovation, and, and uh, you know because. Uh, Situation forced us. What we essentially had was a, a sandbox where people were allowed to test, you know, some innovation during COVID because there was no other choice. It was this right. or you stop practicing. The, you know, the fact that you can have electronic affidavit and things like that. So I don't expect that there's going to be a full go back to the old ways of practicing. There's definitely going to be some things. Um, but I think also this will be used as an experience to see, okay, what did work well that we can continue to do. The fact, that, for example, that the court of appeal is is uh, has done a lot virtual here in Alberta is is doing good. Are they going to go back to? Are they going to continue to be fully virtual when this is all said and done? Probably not. Are they going to still have some uh, um, audience virtually?
0: Probably. So, so I, I think we have to look at it as baby steps. <laughs>
2: steps, yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on here. Uh, we do have one last question that we ask at all of our guests. You're uh, just a liar, Matt. You just keep yeah, on throwing no, no, this one last, we're last keep the yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, any resources that you uh, like to recommend that have helped you along the way that you think could help others, like any books, any podcasts? You already mentioned one. Actually, the uh, I'm forgetting the name, but the checklist one, which we'll throw in the show notes. Checklist Manifesto but, is a really good one. Right.
1: Um, look also at other resources. Uh, whether it's uh, design thinking uh, and things like that as well like there's a lot like the one that i would recommend is uh, on scrum the scrum methodology Mm. Uh, there's a book from uh, jeff Sutherland on scrum i think scrum could change also how we train our people how we uh, manage project manage big project in law firms so I think this is this is a really good way I really like the the approach of having a stand-up meeting mm-hmm. with a team and just having a quick chat okay what did you struggle with what did you work on what did you struggle with what are you going to work on today like just to start today like this I th- I think I could see that in an application in law firms and I think it would be
0: for the benefit of
1: uh, younger associates. Mm-hmm. I totally
2: agree
0: well, well, thanks again for everything. This conversation didn't exactly go quite the direction I thought it would, but that was absolutely fascinating. So that was, uh, I had a lot of fun, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me as well. Uh, Thank you, my and friend. To that was we can yeah. Can meet again soon in, in real in real life. Thanks again to JP for being on the show and we look forward to having him on again when Ingenio is launched. The Good Lawyer Show is produced by Brock Patchelik. If you like what you heard, we would greatly appreciate it if you took a quick second to give us a five-star rating and of course, make sure you hit that subscribe button to ensure you're not missing any nuggets of wisdom from our fantastic guests. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.